You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14-17, through 17, Apostle Paul says this, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, this is the Word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your Word Pray, Father, that you would come and, and speak to us over the next few moments as we study your word. Father, give us hearts that would be receptive to hear from you. Pray, God, that you would reveal more of yourself and more of your heart uh, for us, to us. Most of all, Father, pray that you would magnify and lift high the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and our King trust you to do this work among us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Hey, as we have been studying uh, this section of 2 Timothy, specifically uh, verses 10 through 17 of chapter 3, I kind of want to center us real quick on what I think uh, the main theme is of this section. I think it's all about continuing in the faith. We're continuing to follow Jesus, uh, especially when the world around us uh, seems to be headed for uh, destruction, right? So the Apostle Paul, author of this book to Timothy, uh, he's on death row. He's on death row for preaching the gospel. And so this letter to young Timothy, I think, I believe, it definitely is his final letter, so I think it kind of acts like his final will and testament, if you will. And uh, there's an urgency to everything that I think he's saying in this letter. Um, I think the urgency comes out of his central theme for the book itself. You can find that, I think, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Uh, my summary of that theme is remaining faithful until the very end. Apostle Paul is definitely using himself as that example and then trying to drive that theme forward for Timothy wants them to know about what it means to remain faithful until the very end. I think that theme itself kind of seems to ooze out of every word in this letter. What Paul wants for Timothy, what Paul wants for every believer who reads the words of this letter, is for us to remain faithful until the very end when we walk into the perfect presence of Jesus. That, that's the that's the end zone for us. And that's what Paul wants. Remain faithful till then. But the reality, I think, and we've touched on this quite a bit over the last few weeks, um, remaining faithful until the very end is no easy thing to do. Right? It's, it's a difficult, difficult calling, difficult task, especially in light of some of the things that Paul has said. Verse 13, what does he say? He says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So that makes our journey of continuing faithfully till the end difficult. But that's not to mention the other truth that Paul also identifies in verse 12, when he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Well, you put those two truths together and you go, man, this whole concept of continuing faithfully until the very end, this is difficult. The evil that we see in the world around us, it's only getting worse. It's not getting better. There's a humanistic philosophy of, of a worldview that says we can make it better. But a theological and biblical way of viewing the world says it's not going to get better. The world's on tilt and it's going to be destroyed one day. And so what, as believers, we see that and we go, yeah, we, we expect that. It doesn't make our continuing forward any less hard. Especially when you think about it, experiencing suffering and persecution, which seems to be a promise in Scripture that if you're an authentic believer, you will experience suffering and persecution. So with that in mind, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue, right? As for you, continue. It's like he's saying, hey, despite the fact that you're going to suffer as you continue, uh, despite the fact that evil people are going to continue um, becoming even more evil, despite all that, you must continue. You must not give up. You must not tap out. You must keep going, keep moving forward, keep doing what you're doing. Keep following Jesus faithfully until the very end. This is Paul's message. This is what God would say through Paul. And God, uh, in his kindness, he doesn't just give us those commands, those words, that encouragement, that instruction. He doesn't give us, just give us all of that about continuing in the faith through the Apostle Paul without also providing some very practical ways in which we can continue. I'm thankful that um, God is a practical God, right? Um, often heard and often repeated that good biblical theology is not even good, it's not even biblical theology if it's not also practical. Um, there is truth in that statement. Um, God here gives us practical ways in which we can continue. And, and the, the first practical instruction that, that God gives us through the Apostle Paul here is what we studied last week. Uh, wanted to remind Timothy and us uh, that we need an example. We need somebody who will be an example like the Apostle Paul to model our lives after. And at the end of the sermon last week, the question simply was, who is that person for you? Right? And, 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 and who is it that you're being that model, that example for? Because what we learned last week is that we need someone in our lives that has godly character. We also need somebody in our lives that has faced uh, suffering and persecution uh, be, because they are Christian. And we also need somebody in our lives that will constantly remind us of the truth of God's word. So what every one of us needs, and whatever one of us is called to be, is a godly mentor. Somebody who's walked the path of suffering, with their character still intact on the other side, who continues to speak the truth of the gospel to us. That's what we learned last week in the first portion of verses 10 through 17. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, having a godly mentor is not enough if you're not holding on to God's word yourself. Right? If you're, if you're not holding on to God's word yourself, then all you and I are doing is just riding the coattails of somebody else's faith. Um, you might think of it this way by illustration. Um, if you're only holding on to a mentor and you're not also holding on to God's word yourself, studying it, opening it, reading it, getting to understand it, applying it, 
falling in love with the Jesus that it points you to. If, that's, if that doesn't characterize your life, then you're, you're only riding the coattails of somebody else's faith. And that's kind of like driving a car towards a really important destination without both front tires on. Right? A godly mentor acts like the left tire. And the Bible itself acts like the right tire. And without both, you will not continue until the very end and arrive in heaven in the presence of God. Because you're only driving around on one tire. That's one way of looking at it. We need both. So, the verses in front of us that we're looking at today, last week we looked at the left tire, you might say. This week we're looking at the right tire on the car. Um, This tire is all about holding on to God's word, holding on to it tightly, clinging to it tightly, knowing it. It's God's word that is the life source um, behind our ability to continue. Um, I think what what Paul is basically saying in summary in in the verses in front of us, uh, be 14 through 17, is he's basically saying, hey, I want you to continue faithfully until the very end. And the way that you're going to do that is by holding on to the Bible. The question that uh, is implied in there is, how do you do so? Like, is it, do I just need to physically grip? No. Like, how do you hold on to the Bible? What, what does that actually look like? Right? What does Paul mean when he says this? Well, the first thing I notice in the text, verses 14 and 15, um, is the way that we hold on to the Bible is by remembering who taught us the Bible. Remember who taught you the Bible. And when it comes to holding on to the Bible... I want you to catch this. Um, The subject of who taught us this Bible um, is is, is meant to remind us of what they taught us. Okay? The subject of who reminds us of the what. And I think that's why Paul tells Timothy, you must continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, verses 14 and 15. So simply stated, I think the Apostle Paul is definitely more concerned. Okay, don't, I don't want you to hear me wrong. I think Paul is definitely more concerned with helping Timothy to remember exactly what he has been taught from the Bible. But I think what Paul knows, and I think it makes sense, is that young Timothy, and really you and I, I think we remember what we were taught as we remember who taught it to us. I can see faces and names of people who have faithfully taught me the Bible from the moment that I started following Jesus. And when I remember that, I remember the things they taught me. I remember my dad very early on, just even before I began to follow Jesus, faithfully sharing the gospel with me for years. Every time I would call him in a drunken heap in the street, uh, he would say the same thing to me. Joe, you, you need to come to God and trust in Jesus and his work at the cross. You can't change yourself before you get there. Only he can change you. And if you trust in him, he'll save you and he'll change you. This is his basic message. Trust and believe and be transformed. And he would, he would preach that message to me faithfully over and over and over again. And then he would go pick me up out of the street and take me home. <laughs> Sometimes to the hospital. Um, the who is meant to remind us 
of the what. That's Paul's concern. Helping Timothy to remember what he has been taught from the Bible by reminding him of who taught it to him. And Timothy had been taught the Bible by some very awesome people in the faith, I think, right? If you do a quick study, you look at 1 Timothy 6, you look at 2 Timothy uh, uh, chapter 1, and even a little bit in chapter 2, you, you see that Timothy was taught the Bible by his mother, by his grandmother, and also by the Apostle Paul. Now, there's not many of us who get that claim to fame, like, hey, a biblical author taught me. You know, there's, only, there's only a few people to get that. Timothy had that to lean on. But Paul, if he was standing here in the flesh today, he would say, I'm just a man. I'm just a really sinful man. I'm a nobody. So Paul would say, the worst of sinners. And I think for Timothy, upon remembering who had taught him the Bible, then Timothy would be helped to remember the gospel. Because that, that's, that's the core of it, right? He'd be helped to remember the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that had saved him. You see, Timothy had not been taught the Bible simply for head knowledge. Oh, I know all these interesting facts about this author or that thing or that thing or this thing. Or, or, or like major theological principles so that you can win an argument with somebody who disagrees with you. Uh, I don't think that that's why Timothy had been trained in the Bible, just simply for those things. He'd been taught the Bible so that he could see the one main point of the entire book. And I always love to say that, man, this book is like it's 66 letters, right? Over 40 different authors, written over the course of 1,600 years. Useless head knowledge. If I don't follow it up with the fact that all 40 of those authors, all 66 of those books, all those 1,600 years, all written with one main point, the work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary in the empty tomb. That is the entire point of the Bible all the way through. And that's what Timothy had been taught. And that's what Paul wants Timothy to remember. And he says that pretty explicitly, I think. I think reading the Bible with anything less than the goal of understanding how Jesus is the main point, I think it's a useless discipline that produces lifeless disciples. Thankfully, Timothy was taught the Bible by some very faithful people who held the message of Christ as the center of their teaching. So this is what I think you and I need more than anything else, right? Biblical teaching that holds the message of salvation through Jesus Christ as the main point of our learning. You and I must hold on to the Bible. Agreed? We've got to hold on to the Bible if we're going to continue faithfully until the very end. And one of the ways that we do that is by simply remembering who taught it to us so that we can remember what they taught us. The second thing I notice in the text <coughs> is that if we're going to hold on to the Bible until the very end, we're going to continue this thing until the very end, we're going to keep that right tire aired up well, you need to remember the authority and the power of the Bible. You need to remember the authority and the power of the Bible, according to verses 16 through 17. Now, there are a lot of voices in this world that are constantly competing for our attention, right? You've got social media constantly chattering. You've got the news constantly flashing headlines. You've got friends and acquaintances always reaching out. TV shows, movies, games. Flood of other voices constantly talking in our ear. And for the most part, I say for the most part, you're not going to find anything in all of those voices that are going to strengthen you and I. 
to continue until the very end. I think that only the Bible itself has the authority and has the power to strengthen our, our heads and our hands, what we think, what we do, our feet, the way we journey, our hearts, the way we desire. Only the Bible has the authority and the power to strengthen us for the journey that we're taking, especially if we're going to carry crosses over our, our shoulders like our Savior did. Right? And so I think this is why the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy in verses 16 and 17, a famous passage, if you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, you've already heard it, right? All Scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Simply put, the Bible is authoritative and powerful because, because it's God's perfect word. It's the Bible. The Bible was breathed out by God's very own spirit. It was breathed out through human authors so that the perfect person of God and the perfect will of God, who he is and what he wants in and through the message of Christ Jesus would be revealed to us so that we might be transformed into the people that God has called us and created us to be. Let's simply say the, the Bible is what we are called to teach according to this passage. Using the same words Paul uses, the Bible is what we're called to teach. The Bible is what rebukes us in our sin. The Bible is what corrects our sin. The Bible is what trains us to trust in Jesus. And the Bible is what equips us to become more and more like Jesus. And to that we would all say, Amen. Right? 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is, is not um, the mere creation of mere mortal men. The Bible is God's very own words. Written by men. As the Holy Spirit himself enabled them, empowered them to write as he breathed through them. And the, the interesting illustration from one commentary this week is that every time you speak a word, you breathe. And most of you sit in the audience, you would know that because you would see the spit flying from my mouth when I preach, right? And so we, we know we breathe and we also spit. So I don't know if there's any theological connection to spitting, but we breathe when we speak words. And, and, and the common words used for the Holy Spirit are words that mean breath. The Spirit of God is the breath of God. So, uh, these are God's words written by men as the Holy Spirit enables them to write as He breathed through them. Now here's the thing, if the Bible was anything less, if it was anything less than God's perfect words written by the Holy Spirit through men, then it would be untrustworthy. It would have no power and it would have absolutely no authority and it would just be the words of men, some kind of literature, like an encyclopedia that you could turn to for some information that might be somewhat helpful at times in the here and now, but not for all of eternity. You go back to the Garden of Eden, that's been the problem since then. The serpent questioned God's word to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And from that point forward... That's what humanity has been doing. Questioning, ignoring, excusing, reinterpreting God's 
perfect word. In so doing, missing God's perfect revelation of himself as well as God's perfect will. So the fact that the Bible, God's Word, is perfect. What it helps us to do, when you, when you arrive there and you trust that, helps us to rest assured that God's promises can be taken to the bank. I mean, you think about it. If, if some of God's Word is not true, then, then His promises aren't true. But the reality is we know that this, if this is God's perfect Word, as His Word attests to, then His promises are His Word, Therefore, his word, his promises are authoritative and powerful. Uh, you go to Hebrews chapter 4, too. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. summary of what Hebrews is saying is simply that God's word does exactly what it promises to do. It does exactly what it promises to do. It is the right tool for the job. It cuts deeply into the places of our hearts and our lives that no one else can get into and exposes those darkest parts of us to God, to the Spirit who then has promised and is able to, to, to restore and to heal what is both broken and sick within us. So, so God's word is authoritative. And it's powerful for the job of making disciples who continue until the very end. Right? This is why I say that you and I need to hold on to the Bible if we're going to continue faithfully until the very end. And one of the ways that we do that, according to the text we've been looking at, is by remembering its authority, its power to reveal the perfect person of God, the perfect will of God for our lives in Christ Jesus, so that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus. Right? Now, by way of application, you start asking the question, man, this is, this is to me, as I'm, I love God's word, right? I, I would have no place in the pulpit if I didn't love God's word, if I wasn't a man of God's word, right? Um, the desire that, that I have for, for all of us is that we would be people of the Word. We would be people of God's Word, right? Um, there's much that I think has already been said that's very applicable. Um, if you just review quickly what we've just learned and then try to find maybe a practical way to apply this, I have maybe two ways that I hope to apply um, visually and thoughtfully um, before we end. So here's what we've learned. We've learned that we've got to continue until the very end, Right? Endure suffering, endure persecution. Evil people going to go from bad to worse. Also learn, got to hold on to the Bible. Got to have that tire on the car, otherwise we're not going to roll into eternity. Got to have that Bible on the car. Hold on to it. And if, and, and if you're going to hold on to it, you do that by remembering who taught you so that you can remember what was taught to you. And then also remember the Bible's authority and its power to not only govern, but to transform our lives. So we, we know that. Uh, we do all that as, as it all points us to Jesus. How do you apply? What would be a good way to apply what we've learned? Um, so I, as I thought through this, again, I think I have two things, if time permits. As I thought through this, one comes from a commentary that I read that when I woke up this morning, I thought, man, that is, it's actually really good, and I don't know if I can pass it up. The first one was just something I came up with as I was 
uh, thinking through, man, how do you apply a sermon from God's word about God's word, right? <laughs> how do you kind of flesh this out and just make it so that it has some meaning? Um, I think of two different passages of scripture when I think about God's word that are like my life verses. Got one on my hand here, so I never forget. Uh, Romans chapter 8. It's one of my favorite places to go, but we're not going to go there, okay? Because I think y'all have heard me go to Romans 8 enough over the years. We've got sermon series on it, probably do it again. Uh, in fact, uh, and when, when I think of Romans chapter 8, one of the things I thought of recently is, is uh, my friend Todd uh, from Two Pillars Church in Lincoln. He's currently working through like a, I think it's like a 10-week series in Romans 8, uh, if I remember right. It's 10 or 12. It's like, it's a long series in Romans 8, and I've been listening to it, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I remember the conversations that Todd and I have had uh, in various places. We've sat together for hours, and I've learned from him as he's um, shared his own experience of holding on to Romans 8 throughout all these years of wanting to continue in the faith, right? So I, I, could, you can t- I could go there. I love Todd, and I love Romans 8. So that's, I want to go to Psalm 119. That's where I want to go. Psalm 119 is what came up in my head as I prayed through and thought through uh, this sermon. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture, okay? It's a fascinating passage of Scripture. If you were a young child in Sunday school at some point, uh, you would have heard a Sunday school teacher ask you this question, how does a young man keep his way pure? Anybody know the answer? By keeping it according to thy what? Okay, there was a few of you went to Sunday school. I knew there was a couple of you. Yes. And he just goes on and he just unpacks. Your word is a, it's a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. Right? That's part of Psalm 119. And here's the thing about it. Big picture, Psalm 119. Okay, it's roughly 176 verses long. Um, some summer in the Psalms, as we continue our way through the Psalms, we're going to land on Psalm 119 for the entire summer. It's going to be interesting. 176 verses long. I'm pretty sure it's about the center of the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's all about the Bible, okay? All about the Bible. In fact, David, who is the author of Psalm 119, he uses a number of words, uses a number of phrases to refer to God's Word, and he does that over 174 times, okay? There's 176 verses, and 174 times he uses a word or word phrase that points us to God's Word. Um... Your words, your precepts, your commands, just different phrases. So in other words, Psalm 119 actually references itself, basically, right? Psalm 119 references the Bible nearly every, in every one of its 176 verses. So Psalm 119 is all about the Bible. It's all about God's Word. And, and there is one other cool nugget that I think as you go from big picture down to smaller picture, um, David, when he's referencing the Word of God, one of the words that he uses to uh, talk about God's word is this word promise, okay? And he uses this word promise roughly 12 different times uh, throughout the psalm. And, and, and again, at some point you just go, okay, is this useless information or is this helpful? See, as I do my study, I notice little things like that. I start asking God in prayer, okay, well, why did you uh, ask David? Why did you influence David? Why did you speak through David in such a way that he would use this word promise 12 different times in a context, right, of, of an entire chapter that's talking about your word? Well, why, why? What are you trying to say to us, Lord? 
What exactly is that promise that David is referring to? How does that promise point us to Jesus? I think, here's what I think. I think the promise that David is referring to is the promise of God that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God promises David that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What God literally is doing here is he's promising that David's kingdom and his bloodline is going to be eternal. And to that, you and I go, so what? Who cares? Why does this matter? I don't ask those questions to be um, snarky. I ask those questions because that's the question of interpretation. So what? Who cares? Why does this matter? Drives you forward to keep asking more questions. David responds to this promise. 2 Samuel 7, 21-28, and he says this, says, Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. David's throne, David's bloodline is going to last forever. Even though David is a mere mortal man, if you flip to Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through roughly 31, which we're not going to cover today, um, but by God's unique grace, Patrick used this passage in a meeting this morning, not knowing what I was going to preach. So if you flip there, though, you'll see Peter talking about this very thing, um, which I just think is it's fascinating, okay? David's throne, David's bloodline is going to last forever. The realization of that promise gives David strength, and it causes his heart to be full of gratitude. Again, who cares? So what? Why does this matter? Well, later on in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah builds on God's promise to David. He says, it says, a child will be born to us. Now you know where we're headed, right? He says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. That's Isaiah 9. So the prophet Isaiah, many years later, understands that God's promise to David from Psalm 119, that that promise is going to be the Savior of the world, is going to sit on David's throne forever. So then if you flip forward to the Gospel of Luke, what do you find? You go to the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 1, you find the angel Gabriel. He's building on Isaiah's prophecy, which was built on this promise that was given to David, that David was thankful for and happy for, that he references 12 times in, in, in Psalm 119. And in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel says to Mary that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of God's promise to David and that he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his forefather David. I share all that as illustration to say this is how you read the Bible with Jesus in view. Um, I don't share that to say I don't believe some of you do that. I share that just to, by way of example to say this is what I think brings life to the text. And this is what I think uh, reveals God's heart to us in the gospel. That the point of Jesus, that Jesus himself is the point of all scriptures. And sometimes you get down to a passage and you're reading it and you're going, I don't know how this points to Jesus. And I want to encourage you, don't stop your study until you can answer the question. Because otherwise, like I said, studying the Bible without that main goal in mind, 
I think is a useless discipline that produces lifeless disciples. So the word of God is God's promise. God's promise to David was brought to life in the person, the work of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the word of God. He's the promise of God in the flesh. Jesus is the man that came down from heaven. Jesus is the word of God who sustains all things. God's word is his promise. And his promise is none other than Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and returning for his bride to do what? To make all things new once and for all. Can't wait for that day. Look forward to that day, right? Just an alien passing through this world. Not my home, just on a journey. And this is what I think the Apostle Paul wants Timothy to hold on to as he continues following Jesus until the very end. When we hold on to God's word, what we're doing is we're holding on to Jesus as the word who has become flesh, who is our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, who's been victorious over Satan, sin, and death. So that being said, so I came across this, uh, I thought this would be a, an interesting uh, closing visual for you. Came across it in a commentary, and I, I think it may make some of you angry. Okay, I'll set you up. It may jar some of you, and it may, it might cause some repentance too, maybe. The illustration went like this. Another preacher, um, don't remember his name. Uh, I can show you the commentary it came from. He stepped up in the pulpit one day and he says, um, so if you go to, Take me a minute here. If you go to Matthew, okay, so everybody go to Matthew, let's go to chapter, chapter one. And while you're there, you just rip it out, throw it away, because there's no way that could be true. Go to... Go to some of the uh, uh, miracles that happened in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, scientifically, could those be true? Nah, no way. Maybe rip a few of those out. Hey, you all know who Andy Stanley is, right? So Andy Stanley says we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Take it all out, throw it away. Now you get done with the entire Old Testament. So I personally would never read any of Andy Stanley's books for that reason. But if you've got to unhitch yourself from it, it can't be true, right? The God that was in the Old Testament is far too angry for us to read today because God's a loving God. <clears throat> How about, all right. So, I mean, there's still, there's still plenty here to read and study, right? <clears throat> Let's go to Romans. Familiar with the book of Romans? If you go to Romans, there's, there's some for today. If you go to Romans, let's just go one through two. Romans one through two says some things about our sexuality that is not popular. And that can't be for today, could it? If you go to uh, 1 Timothy, we've been there. 1 Timothy says some things about the role of men and women. 
That's, those are tough topics today. Hey, wait, you know, yep, so we'll take that out. If you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 says something about how God created us male and female. So I, I don't know how you could ever build a church if you preach that in today's culture. So let's stop preaching that. You get the point, right? Now, if you go to the cross and the empty tomb, this other preacher that did this, did this for an hour. And he just kept ripping things out. This preacher could recite the entire Old Testament from heart. When he got done, his main point was, what do you ignore? What do you dismiss? What have you said you don't have time for? And what would you like to claim not to obey in God's word? Because as soon as you start ripping pages out, you start ignoring some, and you get to the point where you don't have time for it. When you're not doing what Spurgeon would say, you guys have heard me say Spurgeon's statement all the time, that our love for God's word should be so obvious that we have ink stains on our noses. Right? As soon as you start doing some of those things, it's as though you're ripping things out of the Bible, and as soon as you start doing that, you have, you have no use for it. It is no longer God's word to you. So I hope the illustration would, would stick. At the end of... Um, the end of this man's sermon, um, he want to cl- went to close in prayer, and uh, the account of this said that uh, everybody in the room said, no, keep preaching. <laughs> I don't know, he preached for another hour. <laughs> so I was joking with Will this morning that I've intentionally kept the last three or four weeks of preaching shorter than usual, so I got at least 15 minutes for each of those weeks to add on. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I hope that this ends uh, as an illustration for you of the importance, mostly the importance of God's word. You've got to have that tire on your car. Um, One of my concerns over 10 years of planting um, the well, there have been been years where, man, there were groups of us that just faithfully studied God's word together every week. Um, And there, there there were years where that was hard, too. It's like, man, it's hard to get everybody in the same room, Right? Uh, you've got busy lives and, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, then the COVID years hit and uh, we kind of stepped back in a different way. And we, we started saying, hey, let's, let's do community groups for people to build good relationships. And let's also spend time in men's ministry and women's ministry of discipling people in the word. Let's just kind of be really simple about that. Let's continue to be word driven on Sunday mornings. And uh, I, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we still have a strong focus on studying I'm believing and applying God's word. And I, I think, you know, if the Lord, if I, if, if like, if I were going to like finish faithfully till the end, if today was the end for me somehow, you know, like if I go out of here and go hang tree stands and fall out of the tree and break my neck and I don't come back next Sunday, I think I, if I'd want to leave one thing, I, it would be some kind of visual that would say, I hope that that's what this church always is about, is a love for God's word and not just to love God's word for God's word, but to love it because it points us to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. 
Thank you for the visuals that we have of how powerful and authoritative uh, your word is to us. And uh, I pray, Father, over the next few moments as we close that you would um, man, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Uh, if, our, if our love for you and your word has waned, lessened, if we've excused in any way, God, uh, please uh, correct us in that. But also, Father, even, even in the midst of that, and even more so than that, God, uh, pray that you would um, turn our hearts to the cross of Jesus. This is where Jesus' body was broken, where his blood was shed on our behalf so that we might come and trust and believe and be transformed. I pray, God, that as we kind of pause towards the end here to be reminded of that through the partaking of communion together as a church family, uh, I pray that you would just do a, a work of ministering to us, capture our minds and our hearts, and remind us of uh, your sufficiency, your power at the cross. I trust you to do that in Jesus' name. And everybody said? As a church family, we celebrate communion every week during the closing of our time together. Our music team will continue leading us in music, and there are three communion stations, two at the front and one at the back under the clock. Communion is an opportunity to remember the finished work of Jesus at the cross, where his body was broken and his blood was spilled for our sins. Communion is for believers, but if you came in here today as an unbeliever and you want to begin following Jesus, and there will be two people at the front stations uh, to pray for you to begin the journey and serve you the communion elements. If you are a believer and you need to confess sin or have any other prayer needs, our servers in the front would love to pray for you. So let's all stand as we can close in a time of worship, communion, and prayer. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.